Hello and welcome to the World Fellows podcast. My name is Emma Skye and I'm director of the World Fellows program at Yale. My guest today is Or Hershauger, an Israeli journalist. Or, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Emma. It's a pleasure being here. So, Or, tell us about your family and what it was like to grow up on a kibbutz in Israel. My maternal grandparents immigrated to Palestine from East Europe, and they were some of the founding members of a kibbutz, a socialist farming commune in the south of Palestine and what is now Israel, about 20 miles east of Gaza. Uh, my parental grandfathers, uh, grandparents uh, came from Poland and they immigrated via the USSR and China and got to Tel Aviv. And my grandfather was one of the founders of the Israeli anarchist movement, which in the early 1950s, just after Israel's independence, didn't really make much of an impact on newborn Israeli society, which was very much nationalist. Um, Going up in a kibbutz for me was something that seemed natural, but in hindsight, you know, it, it was all about living with your age group peers, sleeping, playing, studying uh, all together. A very, not many people, like overall kibbutz population is around 200 persons. Uh, a lot of nature, a lot of farming. Some people that come out of kibbutzim, and most people did not stay in kibbutzim just because of a... a you know, change in values, perspective, ideologies, and also an economic downturn by the end of the 1990s, view the experience as being somewhat limiting, somewhat restrictive, where individualism was put on the backburn in favor of group thinking and communal values. But did you, I mean, what's your personal view? Did you enjoy it? Are you grateful that you grew up on a kibbutz? It's a complex question. Uh, I I can appreciate some of the things that went into my education and my experiences. I think for me, uh, probably a a bigger, uh, more encompassing society would have been more favorable. But of course... This is something that is very personal and you should, like, every every person would have a different experience. So what was it that made you decide to be a journalist? I think I always viewed myself as somebody who wants to write. I wasn't very specific about what sort of writing. Um, growing up in a socialist commune, almost the only family heirloom that we had was my grandfather's uh, typewriter. Uh, I was the kibbutz school newspaper editor, and like I remember myself writing from a very early age. I'm not sure it was a conscious decision to become a journalist. I knew I wanted uh, to be a writer when I grow up, 
Uh, and then when the opportunity came along, I just joined an Israeli newspaper and that's where my journalistic career started. So you've worked for local media as well as international media. What's the difference in how they report stories? That's an interesting question. And there are so many different levels uh, where the work is completely, completely different, even though the end product might seem the same. So if it's about attribution, if it's about the level of resource that uh, is given to every single item, if it's about just trying to realize uh, who's your audience, what's the biggest story, uh, if it's about being very literal in the meaning of the word. So if we're thinking about journalism standards, these vary from one location to the other. But I also think um, that one main differentiator is that when you're working for international media and you're attempting to convey a story to an audience that does not necessarily have all the details of what exactly is going on on ground, you focus so much of your energy on just describing the context of things. And when you're in local media, you just start media lists uh, and, and go on with the exact details of who did what, when, and you don't have to deal with the larger consequences. Also, there's uh, an important difference when it comes to just granularity and interests. For instance, uh, reporters that are trying to write about geopolitics and international relations for a local audience in Israel many times find it frustrating that the local audience doesn't really care much for these uh, issues. And, you know, I, I also get similar feedback from, from other regions in the world, but when, you, you, when you're writing for an international audience, obviously these things become so much more prominent and, uh, and get a lot more attention. Now, I know you follow tech closely. And you've reported on Israel's exports of surveillance technology. How is this shaping Israel's relations with Arab countries? There have been major shifts in, in Middle Eastern geopolitics over the last 10 years. So my original beat, bo both as a reporter and an editor, was just focusing on Israeli tech, meaning venture deals, mergers and acquisitions, uh, especially focused on on larger sums and exciting technologies. But um, I started working in 2008 and somewhere in the second decade of the 2000s, uh, it seemed that things were changing in ways that tech exports and tech relations were really starting to shape the way Israel handles its regional relations. Uh, it started harnessing the almost monopoly it had on surveillance technology to form stronger ties with Arab states and other states because other countries were hesitant to sell and export these technologies. And now we're, we're talking about the uh, time of the Arab Springs and some of these uh, regimes and autocracies were very scared of civic unrest. And so for them, it was an essential technology to remain in power. For Israel, while it may seem different, this was not 
uh, outside of the country's interests because the way the Israeli um, government saw it, at least back then, if, if we're uh, if we're talking about the uh, 2008 to 2015, Netanyahu was in power back then, uh, um, communicating with the Obama administration in the U.S. and and uh, Netanyahu was upfront about his support to existing Arab regimes, saying that if they fall down, whoever would come in and step in would probably be much worse for Israel's national security. And he said uh, he said so about uh, the Mubarak regime in Egypt and about other regimes as well. So how do you see the future of Israel five to ten years from now? I'm certain Israel's soft power and influence in the region and in the world would grow. If you look at Israel's economic trajectory, uh, it's very positive. Tech is going. Actually, I think 2021 would be seen as an inflection point in terms of just the raw size of Israeli tech. We've got now have thousands of new millionaires because of a long series of public offerings in companies worth between anything between billions of dollars and tens of billions of dollars. I think um, Israeli tech in size probably somewhere between doubled and tripled over the last years in terms of just money being poured into the local market. And so we're going to see a spillover of that newfound economic power into the wider Middle East region. Now, I think the question stands whether Israel is going to use the new power it acquired to change uh, the situation of not just the regimes in, in the area, but also of the people living in it. And it certainly can do so, especially with agricultural technologies, with fintech technologies, and also with things that are probably more advanced in terms of AI. But there's also a possible negative side where technologies coming out of Israel would be detrimental to the rise of democracies. And maybe in the long, in the short term, it would create greater stability, but I'm not sure that is viable in the long term. Well, the amount of people living between the Mediterranean Sea and the River Jordan will be let's say 15 million, and Jews will be in the minority in the future. Do you see a future that is a one state or a two state? I'm not sure, to be honest. Like, I'm not sure who's going to be in power on the Israeli side. I'm not sure who's going to be in power on the Palestinian side. I'm pretty positive that if there are going to be uh, elections in the West Bank and Hamas is going to take power, most probably any elected Israeli government would not allow for Hamas to take root in a separate independent state, given the situation that has, uh, that has happened in Gaza ever since the Israeli army pulled out. So in that sense, it's open to so many different opportunities. But to be quite honest, I'm not sure anybody has a path forward that leads directly from the point that we're at to an independent Palestinian state, at least in the conditions that we have now 
with current elected governments. Israeli politics have taken a, a, a shift to the right over the last two decades. And that also has to do with the experiences that Israelis see in terms of what happens when the Israeli military pulls out, whether if it's in Gaza or in Lebanon, and the rise of influence of Iran proxies, uh, including Hezbollah and Hamas. And now we're also seeing uh, an a possibility of a triple front in future con uh, conflicts if, uh, with missiles coming from Gaza, possibly the West Bank, Lebanon, and Syria. So if there's a path forward, uh, I'm not sure we can say exactly what that is. I can just say that the Abraham Accords can be very influential in the long term. And if other Arab states join the Accords, if it's Saudi and, and additional states, maybe things can, can start maybe coming down and if economic uh, situation improves in the West Bank, which is what the current Israeli government is focused on, maybe we can start cooperating and at least agreeing on facts and the steps required to achieve a future agreement. One of the potentials of the Abraham Accords is that these Arab countries are going to put pressure on the Palestinians to do a deal and on the Israelis to be more accommodating. Do you think that could have an impact on the relations between Israelis and Palestinians? I think the, the uh, just question of legitimacy and, and opinion in the Palestinian state itself is so often overlooked. And so if you're thinking why Arafat could not reach a deal and why Abbas cannot reach a deal, I think it also has to do with their power base. And what we're currently seeing is just more and more influence going to extremist Islam and Hamas. So for that trend to be overturned, yes, definitely it would require more funds and more support from other sects in the Arab world. Can it happen? I'm not sure. So many factors can weigh in. Well, or I wish you all the best for the future. Thank you so much, Emma.